We always joked that our marriage was a arranged marriage. You know, before I met her, my mom, who was the church secretary at the time, came home and said, oh, I just spoke with Pastor Nick, and he said there's a new family in church, and he just met the girl you're going to marry. And that's exactly how it went. <laughs> There was never a question. There was never an allowance for questioning. Uh, I remember being on a rooftop with friends out in the Palm Desert. Uh, we were staying at a host home, a friend who was in another band, and he said, this is my favorite part of my week. I come out to my favorite spot, look out at my favorite view. I smoke my clove cigarette <laughs> and have my favorite coffee, and I just sit here and, and I just really enjoy. And I, I remember him saying the word favorite so many times that it just, I had this random thought that has stuck with me ever since. And I was like, I don't think if somebody asked me that I could answer what's my favorite color. <laughs> I don't know if I know my favorite anything. I don't know myself. I don't know who I am. And that little thought caused me to start the process of, hey, James, who are you? What do you like? Welcome back to The Lonely Hour. This is Julia Bainbridge. We've been using this mini-series to share stories of people who went off the grid in search of solitude. And James, who requested that we don't use his last name, is our fourth and final guest. James grew up in a born-again Christian community in New Hampshire, where a few families lived communally. They slept in dorms together, they ate meals together, and they traveled the United States and Central America on a tour bus, performing plays and preaching the gospel. Eventually, James's family moved to Long Island. His parents were the youth pastors at church, and that's pretty much exclusively where he socialized. James wasn't allowed to listen to non-Christian music or watch movies rated above PG, not even once he got to college. Students had to report to their RAs about whether or not they drank alcohol, smoked tobacco, got tattoos— or even danced. Oral Roberts University, I will call it out by name. Yeah, it was a televangelist-led you know, or founded college and very much a, they called themselves a ministry before a school. Students certainly couldn't date, but even having romantic thoughts about one another was forbidden. James was grilled about, for example, whether or not he noticed a female student's bra strap showing in the hallway. <sighs> Basically... In the Bible, there may, and the Bible can be can and has been manipulated a million different ways uh, by many groups. So uh, the message would be: Hey, in the Bible, it says if you have thought an impure thought about a woman, you've basically defiled her. So yeah, they're equating even thinking about sex with rape. Um, yeah, so. That's, I mean, I, I forget the exact uh, question now. <laughs> I just got lost. The question had been about masturbation. It was also seen as sinful, something that James had to confess to his pastor if he had done it. 
Anyway, there was a special woman in James's life. They had met when they were 12 years old, and they both ended up attending Oral Roberts. We never, ever used the word dating. We were, we called each other best friends. Um, we, well, this is getting into embarrassing territory, but because of all the abstinence stuff, we were like, uh, very, we were like barely physical contact. I don't, we didn't kiss till after college, but we were dedicated. We were kind of a couple. We never used that word. I guess we would use the word courting, but we never used that. And then suddenly we just got married at some point. So this was James's world. Things even as big as marriage just fell into place. There was a template to follow, a way to be, behavior that was defined as good or bad. I spent a lot of time believing that, um, and I saw the benefits. And honestly, until the events of, you know, uh, recent, uh, that's when it all kind of came down crashing on me. Before everything came crashing down on him, James was bolstered by strict rules, by a clear way to live, by a religion that guided his life. But in college, he started to see flaws in that system. While I was still there, every man and woman has curfew. Ladies are earlier curfews than guys, and we're all, you know, separated. I only bring up the gender stuff because I, I, it was a sticking point that was so upsetting to me then that if a woman was pregnant, she would be kicked out, but the man wouldn't. I, I don't, anyways, weird stuff like that. And there was mandatory chapel. If you missed it, you literally paid fines. And for a college student, that was devastating. But it functioned as a school in most aspects. Like you'd go take a Spanish class. I would go to my music classes. But also you had to take things like charismatic healing, where you were taught what uh, Richard Roberts, who was the president at the time, would do to heal people. You know, you put your hand at this place on their forehead, you say these words and, you know, teaching you the techniques of here's how the Holy Spirit can use you. Now, Tulsa, Oklahoma is the Bible Belt. It is God country. Every corner of Tulsa is populated by a giant structure that used to be a Walmart supercenter that has now been bought by a church and is a mega church. Not just one, several. I'm coming from Long Island where I didn't know Christians outside of my youth group. Tulsa was a culture shock of... Christianity running things. I mean, and at chapel, they told you, hey, here's who's running for uh, mayor or whatever local office, and here's who you vote for. It was all tied up in, again, the televangelist thing where it's a lot about money. You're seeing these giant structures and uh, being held up by, you know, millions of dollars. And that was a lot of the message. I had never heard the prosperity gospel before, but this was a place where I was exposed to seed faith and the prosperity gospel, which means kind of the more money you give, the more God you get. Um, if you're sick, if you need healing, which was a very big theme there, you basically go give as much money as you can. And um, if you're not being healed, your faith isn't strong enough, a.k.a. your giving is is too weak up that, you know? That was so different than what I experienced. And I started to see the big Christianity that was getting poked fun at in The Simpsons or in the little pop culture things I had been exposed to. I'm like, oh, this is why people don't like this. 
And by the way, I'm starting to join up with the side of people that don't, <laughs> that see this as an issue, uh, see this as kind of taking advantage. And it's not this personal spiritual journey, it's a business. James was in a band, and somewhere in the middle of college, they got picked up by a record label and started touring. So for a few years, he and four to eight guys, plus a road crew, traveled on a bus, stopping along the way to play gigs. Even though I still had my small bubble around me, um, we were what Christian artists would call playing crossover venues. It wasn't exactly playing churches anymore. We were out there playing bars, and we're getting in touch with you're meeting people you're, uh, all over the country that these are the people my parents warned me about or that the church cursed and said, get these people out of your life, uh, whether it's homosexuals or people that are visiting bars at all. And I'm meeting these people and I'm becoming friends with them and I'm having these beautiful, wonderful experiences with them and starting to question like, is this what they were worried about? This is what they were hiding? Like just normal people? <laughs> Uh, so that definitely started to challenge my, my long-held beliefs even further. James's female friend would visit when she could. Yeah, she would come out on the road with us sometimes when she could. And that was, uh, that was really rough because we weren't sleeping together. So if we crashed in a Salvation Army for a week, we would all, you know, me and the other guys in the band would be together. And then she would be alone in some other room with you know, transients. <laughs> um, that definitely wore on us. I felt bad, but I also felt righteous somehow. You know, we would stay in host homes and say, okay, and here's your bed. And I'm like, no, no, she can stay there. I'll go sleep on the couch. And I, I thought I kind of had a mark of pride about that. Eventually, they got married. Even the proposal was a communal event. On Christmas Eve, in his family's living room, James asked his girlfriend, yes, let's call her girlfriend now, to marry him. His parents were a model couple in the church, and that's what James and his wife, she said, yes, we're going to be too. So we got married, rushed off to a honeymoon for maybe 10 days. We got back home, and I right away left for tour. It, there was never, that was the time where you're supposed to finally have <laughs> a sexual relationship and start that and nurture that but there was all this start and stop to even that because I was still touring we never really established the man and wife relationship because uh, even right, right when I stopped touring and finally we were really really alone we moved into a house with a bunch of friends we did that twice so even then, we still never gave ourselves the real alone-focused thing. We'll be right back. This episode of The Lonely Hour is supported by Away. The luggage company was started by two friends from New York who found themselves at JFK with dead phones, delayed flights, and a bright idea, suitcases with power. And so the Away carry-on was born. Both sizes of the carry-on, the regular and the larger one, are able to charge all cell phones, tablets, e-readers, and anything else that's powered by a USB cord. A single charge of the Away carry-on will charge your iPhone five times. 
All of Away's suitcases, which include medium and large sizes for extended stays and nine color options, have a compression system, a TSA-approved combination lock, and they come with a lifetime warranty. If anything breaks, they'll fix or replace it for you. I don't own any other kind of suitcase. I did away with all my other bags when I discovered how indestructible, lightweight, and well-designed away suitcases are. I have a carry-on and a large, both in sand, a neutral color that still stands out from the sea of black at the airport. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash thelonelyhour and use promo code thelonelyhour during checkout. Again, visit awaytravel.com slash thelonelyhour and use your promo code thelonelyhour during checkout for $20 off. This episode of The Lonely Hour is supported by Audible. Could listening inspire you to start something new? Listening is, in fact, what led to the start of The Lonely Hour. And there's never been a better time to start listening on Audible. With Audible, you get access to an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, including bestsellers, motivational works, mysteries, thrillers, memoirs, and more. It has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet. I'm listening to The Source of Self-Regard, a selection of essays, speeches, and meditations by the great Toni Morrison right now. And then there's Audible Originals, which features content made just for members. Those members can choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two Audible Originals you can't hear anywhere else. You'll also get access to exclusive audio fitness programs. Unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible you own your books. Listen on any device, anytime, anywhere. And there's a great listen guarantee. If you didn't like the book, you can swap it. With the app, you can share audio excerpts with friends, you can control the speed, listening faster or slower, and you keep your audiobook library forever, even if you cancel. Get started with a 30-day trial when you go to audible.com slash thelonelyhour or text thelonelyhour to 500-500. Again, that's audible.com slash thelonelyhour or text thelonelyhour to 500-500. Audible, the most inspiring minds, the most compelling stories, the best place to listen. All right, now a lot happened around this time. The band broke up as some members started to question their faith and others didn't. James toyed with the idea of a career in graphic design, but eventually turned to the family business in Long Island. And by this point, he had become what he calls a hardcore atheist. And while he was clear about that, he missed the idea of forgiveness from God as well as the idea of an afterlife. He self-medicated with booze for a while. At the same time, his wife got a job in New York City. Every once in a while, if she needed to work late, she'd spend the night at a friend's house in the city. And because James had spent a lot of their marriage touring, he didn't give her trouble. He just didn't question her absence much. I was like, yeah, this is kind of us. We're a weird couple. We're very much our own individuals and lead individual lives. That's fine. But it went on for, you know, over a year where then it started turning into three or four nights a week. My wife is not home. Um, again, I was in a very numbed out place. I, I knew something was up, but was not in a position to confront it. I was just uh, drinking through it. <laughs> um, and I, I, like I said, I always had my own personal projects, music, graphic design going on. So I could just get lost in those for hours and hours and hours. And if she called and said, hey, I won't be home tonight, sometimes I'd be like, oh, all right, well, I guess I'll just spend the night recording. Um, but at a certain point, you know, you call work enough times and she's not actually there. Uh, friends make comments here or there. Um, 
And I also had, uh, you know, I knew a guy that she was getting close to. At the same time, James and his wife had started distancing themselves from their community. It was watching my entire world change, you know. Uh, my, my life path had disappeared. My church world had disappeared. I still was hanging on to this small group of friends and this girl. And even over the, the years of that, I, you know, lose touch with friends. Uh, many people do lose touch with friends from their childhood, but this was like a big thing for me. I was like, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be going to church with you anymore, so I probably won't see you. And there are sort of lines drawn between sometimes, you know, churchgoers and non-churchgoers, and that started to happen. Once I stopped going to church, there are certain people I never heard from again. Um, so... I really turned inward for my journey of, okay, who am I? Drinking continued to be the answer for a little while longer. And I just retreated further and further into substance abuse, um, kind of tuning out everything, not, not taking control of my life in any way, shape, or form, just letting it have its way with me. You know, get up, drink to get through the day of work that I don't like, and get home, turn on the TV, drink more to not have to be faced with my own thoughts. And I tuned out of my life and I tuned out of my marriage. And she needed, you know, she was going through this hard time as well. So she turned elsewhere. His marriage was declining, but James was starting to turn things around for himself. Here's a guy who was given a ready-made religion, a prescription for how to live, waking up to the fact that he doesn't even know what his favorite color is. James wanted to get to know himself. It started in silly ways, like me just taking a bunch of uh, personality quizzes, trying to answer questions about myself, which was more difficult than I thought it would be. And also being a musician and an artist my whole life, I was always reading. I was always, uh, that was one area that I could explore, I guess, things that I liked and my interests and not feel bad about for some reason. I started to have this memory that when I was a kid, some of my favorite times in life and most meaningful times were A, I would lock my door and put on a record and just sit there and be alone, listen to the music, read along with the lyrics. That was a powerful experience to me. Or B, it would be wait until my entire family went to sleep. Then I could go put on the TV or put on something online that I knew that they wouldn't approve of. Not even like, uh, you know, horrible things, just like mystery science theater. I'm going to sit here and watch this, and I realize, oh, I'm in love with this. Or I would go research. I'm a kind of a research nerd. I would go and read about things that interested me on the internet, and I realized, oh, all those times that whatever I can pin myself as like having a, a personality or at least an area of interest, they developed out of alone times. And I started realizing what I know now, like, oh, yeah, I have not developed myself much because I haven't been alone much and the things that I do you know consider these pillars of my personality if any they were born out of alone times somewhere along this road to self-discovery James found something called chaos magic so what is it so chaos magic is a very creepy name for something that is just really practical. Um, chaos magic is like the stripped down, no nonsense, quick and dirty punk rock version of 
the old school uh, robes and altars, ceremonial magic from the Western esoteric tradition. It it's, takes principles from ancient religions like Babylonian and Gnostic religions all the way through Enlightenment era, uh, alchemist, um, hermetic, Kabbalist orders. But it distills it all down to, hey, you don't need all the props and you know, you don't need to memorize occult libraries and you don't even really need other people to practice this. You don't need to become a part of an order. Here's a few meditation techniques that you can use to alter your perspective, therefore alter your life. If if your life is, or if your reality is to a large extent based on your perspective, then if you can change your perspective a little, you're kind of changing your life or your approach. So like from a psychological perspective, it's really about trying to reach an altered state of consciousness, maybe through meditation techniques or things like a runner's high where you're having sort of a peak experience uh, on the high end, like ecstatic experience or a very low end, like meditation, think of nothingness. It's getting into those states and then while you're in touch with your subconscious because your ego isn't being sort of a goalie at that moment, focus all of your attention onto a sigil, which is a symbol that you have created that represents your will, some specific intent. Maybe it's, uh, I want this internship to turn into a full-time position. And you've turned that into a symbol, symbolism being the language of your subconscious. It's like those life-changing religious experiences that I had, but kind of stripped of the spiritual fluff that was turning me away from it all. It seemed more like a psychological approach that was very similar to some of the powerful experience I did have in church, but without the church, and I could do it as a loner. It's all on your own terms, and I didn't have to subscribe to any funny stuff about worship this God or that. It's kind of make up your own stuff. I used that technique to cold turkey, stop smoking cigarettes, drinking booze all day, every day. And I I made a few specific sigils that kind of triggered this whole thing that was about confronting the problems in my marriage. And those things came to being, and it changed my life. James felt clear-headed. He felt empowered to ask his wife what was going on. One night, like so many others, James texted her to ask if she would be coming home for dinner. He received something along the lines of, oh, I'm with a friend, but coming home soon. Then an update, oh, wait, I'm going to stay here a little longer. His response? What you're doing is destroying our marriage, so it's time to talk about that. She didn't admit to anything that night, but months later, she confessed that she was sleeping with someone. James guessed who it was. His wife pleaded that they try to work it out. Okay, if that's what you really want then I think we can do this. I think we can save our marriage. And I'm willing to work on it if you're willing to work on it. Then he caught her with a burner phone that she was using to communicate with her lover. Even though I had just made all these healthy changes in my life, it all started to feel shaky. So I was like, okay, I do not want to slip into deep depression or anything. I need to find the courage to walk away from this relationship for a little bit to get some self-care in. That was really hard because at this point I had been watching her every move. You know, in order to try and trust her, I had to keep trying to watch where is she, uh, uh, who is she talking to, 
And so I got very, very obsessed and caught up in all that. Uh, so to step away from that at all was like a big thing for me to allow whatever was going to happen to happen while I wasn't watching. Um, that was like too big an idea to face, but I was inching towards that and eventually did get to that point. James took 10 days in the Catskills to think. His cabin could only be accessed on foot. To get there, he drove down the highway, past the small towns that dotted it, and then up into the mountain roads. Those turned into dirt roads through the woods, and about a mile from the house, all roads stopped. James left his car and walked to his secluded little space. His days would start with long hikes, and nights would be spent performing chaos magic rituals in the hopes of gaining clarity. I really wanted to walk away from that experience uh, deciding something. I wasn't ready to decide if my marriage was over, but I wanted to decide maybe I should create more space here and move out, just get away from her a bit and stop trying to control things and let it happen. So it was night after night kind of facing aspects of that. And journaled. I don't journal as much as I should. I keep a bit of a dream diary for like magical purposes, but I sat there and on top of a specific spot on a mountain and filled an entire journal with my thoughts. And by the end of that trip, I had decided two things. One, that it was time to move out. And two, that if at the end of this I ended up alone, that I would be okay. At this point, I had really related to my uh, <laughs> my Myers-Briggs diagnosis of being an introvert. And what I kind of think that means is like around people, I, I'm very aware of and in tune with what's going on with them or... It's like an empath thing or an empathy thing where if I'm in a room with someone, and I think this is part of me being a music performer as well. If I'm in a room with someone, there's a part of me that wants to be the host or curate the experience. And that means constantly thinking about what are they thinking? um, How is their experience going? And what should I do to make it better? I'm just very drawn to and wrapped up in other people's thoughts um, so that I don't always think for myself. I don't always think, hey, what's best for me in this experience? In my marriage, I started to see that pattern. Like, I'm so wrapped up in her concern and being concerned for her that I'm not even thinking about how this is affecting me. People kept scaring me, saying, James, you're going to, the longer you stay in this, the more scars you're going to have and more, more shit you'll have to work through at the end of it. And I kept asking more specifically, I'm like, what do you mean? What's going to happen? Tell me. Because I wasn't tuned into that at all. Um, so that's why I needed to be alone. I was like, I need to be fully, fully, fully alone to really get in tune with what I want or what's best for me. And to confront being alone for real. If I keep calling myself an introvert and I, I feel good in those situations... Well, then my place of power is alone. The 10 days were up and James returned to Long Island. That night we 
funny enough, what came up was we sat around and told old stories. We reminisced about the college days, and um, it was a nice time <laughs> talking about, hey, the past, and that was nice, wasn't it? And at the end of that night, I said, okay, I'm not coming home. I set myself up a, a different place, you know, a couple towns over. That's where I'm going. And she said, okay, I understand that. And she said, I want you to know things are over with me and the guy, uh, her affair partner. And she's like, I'm going to use this time to prove to you that. And I want you to not worry about me. I want you to go take care of yourself. I'm going to take care of myself. We'll both be stronger. I'll see you at therapy. So that's where we left off. And I moved out. But his old house, where his wife was still living, was close to where he worked, and one night after working late, he drove past it, and he saw an unfamiliar car in the driveway. And I pulled in, and I, you know, I texted her, hey, I'm just coming by to stop, pick up some books and stuff. Um, all right, if I come in for a minute, there was commotion upstairs. Um, it took quite a while for her to answer the door. We had very little closet space in this place. Um, there was one closet in the house. I walked in the house, I walked right to that closet and opened it up to find her affair partner in there. I opened the door. He says, hey, I closed the door and just went, oh. And then she in, from the other room says, what, what's wrong? And I said, your trash bag boyfriend is in here. And that was it. You know, I was like, there, okay, there's your answer. This pattern is never going to break. She'll never break up with this guy. And James, what more of an answer do you need? This will never stop. His wife still unbelievably tried to play it off as nothing. But James was done. Uh, yeah. We did still talk a little more after that and still, mm, uh, we, you know, there was, a, there was still, there's still attachment, you know, after something like that. We were, you know, lifelong friends from when we were kids, if not uh, even having a romantic relationship anymore. So yeah, we still talked a bit more after that. And then we did have a, a nicer closure night where I came over and, um, you know, we talked calmly and uh, it was like officially like, okay, I'm, I'm no longer putting the effort into this. I, I got to go take care of myself now. Because I grew up in belief in spirituality, my belief is a very strong muscle. So, for example, when things were clearly bad in my marriage, my belief in us gave me the strength to keep on fighting for us. And then that trip allowed me to pivot my belief from putting all my effort into keeping us together to putting all my effort into keeping myself together. And when I did break up with her, I finally found out the answer to, hey, what's going to happen to me? 
What's happened to him is that he's gotten into therapy. He's gotten into nutrition and taking care of himself. He does yoga. He meditates. And he's about to move further east on Long Island to a more rural area. I had a friend that lived out in that area and knew um, someone that does, runs a horse rescue. So I won't be working there. They just had a, a rental space available there. Um, and it, I, I went by and looked at it. It seemed uh, really nice and just provided a lot of solitude, um, which is I'm really drawn to. So, yeah, I'm excited. And you know what? My mom has been taking care of my cat for me for a little while. And I will finally get to be reunited with my uh, little asthmatic cat. James. Thank you for sharing this story with us. Yeah, thank you, Julia. Yeah, it, it took more courage than I thought to come out of the closet as an introvert <laughs> and, and be okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> That's it for our four-part miniseries. Do you have strong thoughts or questions about this episode? You can email me at lonelyhourpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at lonelypodcast, or you can find me on the Lonely Hours Facebook page. Sign up for our newsletter at thelonelyhour.com, and you'll be the first to know about what we're up to next. We need to take a minute to figure that out, but we will. We promise. Until then, enjoy yourself. This episode was produced at The Listening Booth with the help of executive producer Terrence Mickey and audio producer Chris McLeod, who also composed our theme music. I hope you liked this episode. If you want us to keep making more, please become a member of The Lonely Hour on Patreon. That's the best way to support the show. Go to patreon.com slash thelonelyhour. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thelonelyhour to learn more. Thank you for your generosity and for believing in this project.